It's always good to be uh, to be here with you, and um, a few of you are familiar faces. It's good to see you again, um, Troy. Uh, thank you so much for your encouragement and uh, support over the last these last few years. You really have a treasure of a pastor. I am sure you all know that, but I just want to remind you of that. Uh, do not take this man and his family for granted. He's a, a real blessing. Um, really encouraged by, by my friendship with Peter and Corey, too. Um, really encouraged by your ministry and what the Lord's doing with you. Um, so um, a, a quick just summary, right? Here, here's my pitch for why you should come uh, stay for the workshop after, after worship. Um, first off, yes, there's the Patriots game at 1 o'clock. We're playing the Bills. I mean, really? Like, do you want to watch that? I mean, we all know what's going to happen. So just save yourself the misery and the gnashing and weeping. And um, the, second, the second reason why you should stay, if you've ever had a conversation with someone of a different generation, um, usually probably a, a younger generation, or if you're a, a teenager and you've had a conversation with someone older than you and you feel like you're speaking a different language and you're like, I don't understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. How is what I'm saying not making sense? Right? Anyone ever experienced this? Okay. So come to the workshop. And that's what we're going to be talking about is like what is going on there? Uh, what is happening in um, the world of, of Gen Z? And how, how do they think through life and the world? Um, this is not a time to trash on or to criticize Gen Z. It's not a time to point out all the ways that the younger generation just doesn't get it and is messing everything up and is ruining, like, we're not doing that, right? We're, we're talking about how do we understand what's going on in our culture and how do we respond uh, according to the gospel uh, for the sake of healthy conversations across the generations. So that's what we're gonna be talking about and there'll be plenty of time for conversations and everything after my part of the presentation. So um, really excited to, to have that uh, and host that conversation with you all this morning. Uh, so this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, generation to generation. Right? Uh, how do we as a, a church family, how do we pass the faith from generation to generation and raise up um, the younger generation in the fear and love of the Lord? So uh, that's... That's the objective this morning. So uh, would you pray with me? And then we'll dive into God's word and see what he has to say about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness um, to us and to your church. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would help us to, um, as Troy reminded, to do more than know you, but to love you, um, to love you and to obey you. Um, not just because we're afraid of you, um, but to, to obey you because we fear and love you. Uh, and we know that we love because you first loved us. Uh, so Lord, help us, uh, whoever we are, um, to, to walk in your love, to live in your love, uh, to be a living embodiment of your gospel um, so that the next gener generation would know and love Jesus Christ. Uh, and so I, I pray that your words would stand and that mine would fall. We pray this in Christ. Amen.
All right, so um, I served as a youth pastor for 18 years um, and uh, now lead a ministry called Youth Pastor Theologian. But 18 years of youth ministry uh, makes me something of an anomaly. Um, and back, way back when I first interviewed um, at, my, at my first church in uh, the summer of 2005, I was talking with a search committee, as you do, and they said, okay, so you know, you're graduating from seminary. How long do you really think you'll be here? I said, well, I, you know, I really love preaching. I love theology and doctrine. And so you know, I'll probably want to become a, a preaching pastor, a preacher someday. Um, but I love youth ministry uh, too much to treat it as a stepping stone, to, to just treat it as like what I need to do before I can get the job I actually want. Um, so I, I do think that my calling for now is youth ministry, but I have to admit, I don't think I'll be a youth pastor forever. Uh, enough said, right? And um, the Lord just never let me go. Um, the more I kept serving uh, students and engaging in conversations with them about helping them think through life, like the, the questions that teenagers ask are really incredibly complicated, deep, serious questions. Uh, sometimes we can think about uh, teenagers like, oh, like all they care about is their video games and social media. But, but the questions that teenagers ask are profound. And generally speaking, the best questions, the hardest theological questions I have ever had to face are usually by middle schoolers um, because high schoolers are too self-conscious to ask the hard questions and feel like, oh, like, I feel like I should know this one and it's going to be a weird question, so I'm going to keep it to myself. Middle school is just like, here it is. And it's almost always prefaced with, so I know I should know the answer to this, but, and then it's like some big thing that's been debated for thousands of years, right? So, but, but here, here's my point, right, is um, it's really important that we as, as church members, not just as youth pastor, right, but as church members, that we take our calling to the next generation seriously and that we treat youth ministry as more than like entertainment and as more than a safe space, right? We do want youth ministry to be a safe space for students, um, but we want to be more than fun. We want to be more than a safe space. If the number one question that we ask our kids when we pick them up from church, or from, from youth group, or when we drive home from church is, was it fun? What are we teaching our kid is the most important thing that should happen there, right? So don't ask that as your, your first question, right? Because then you're reinforcing what, what, it, what should be happening there, right? So, so how, do we, how do we lead a church in a way that we are meaningfully engaging across the generations and among the generations, open dialogue and relationships where the gospel is transforming all of us together, right? So that's the vision um, of scripture. And that's, um, what we, that's, we, that's what we all want, right? So we're going to look at two key passages this morning about that. We're going to look at Judges chapter 2. And we're really going to sit and dig into Deuteronomy chapter 6. So those are the two main passages this morning. Um, so I want to read for us uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 2. And then I'll, I'll set you a little bit of a background about what, what just happened and what we read 
um, and why that leads us into Deuteronomy 6. So Judges 2, um, I'm going to read Judges 2, 6 through 10. I love that sound, right? The the pages turning. Um, All right, Judges 2, 6 through 10. When Joshua dismissed the people, the the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went out after other gods and from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. That's a passage, right? Um, And so what's what's happening here? Joshua has uh, led Egypt uh, has led Israel into the promised land, right? All these amazing promises that were given to Abraham um, are are now fulfilled. They've been freed and and led out of slavery in Egypt through the leadership of Moses. Uh, Moses dies. Now Israel's all like, now that Moses is gone, will God still be faithful to us? Will God remember what he promised? Are we going to have to wait another 400 years? Like, what, what, what is happening without Moses? But then Joshua, right? The, the Lord is faithful to Israel through the leadership of, of Joshua, just as the Lord was faithful through the leadership of Moses. And now they're, they're going into the promised land. They've renewed their covenant before the Lord. Remember that verse, as for me and my house, right? We will serve the Lord. And so it's this, this big question of like, Tell me this day who you will serve, right, before they go in. And he says, tell me, like, make a commitment, make a vow, renew your vow before the Lord. Who will you serve? And the people say, we will serve the Lord. Great. Good answer. Well done. You passed the test. Now they're in the promised land, right? And what we read is tragic here. In case you missed this, it says that during the life of Joshua and of his generation, Israel was faithful. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers. That means they, they died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done in Israel. How does that happen? Right? Like the, the, the people who literally like walked through the Red Sea, who ate the daily manna, right? The Lord had conquered 
the, the people who lived in the promised land, like the Battle of Jericho, right? Like the, these incredible stories that we, that we read and that we hear and that we receive throughout the book, uh, throughout the, the Old Testament. Like these things happened to them and yet their kids were not faithful to the Lord. And it says they didn't know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel. Now, here, here's the important thing that I think um, is worth recognizing. Uh, that the word that's used for know here is this Hebrew word yada, which means like it's an intimate knowledge. So my hunch is it's not saying, I don't believe this is saying that they literally, who is the Lord? I've never heard that name. I don't think that this generation was completely oblivious about what God had done. They just thought about it the way that we think about the pilgrims, right? Like, oh yeah, that's Plymouth. It's not far from here. Cool. Pilgrims, great job. Appreciate it. Really appreciate your work. Where's the turkey? Yeah. Where's the turkey? Cranberry sauce for me, right? It's coming up. Excited for it. Um, Right? Like, pilgrims don't really have, I don't intimately know the pilgrims. I don't think about them regularly and appreciate and revere that, right? I think for, for the people of Israel, the Lord was like the pilgrims. Sure, I know this stuff. I could pass the Sunday school tests. Moving on. I got bills to pay. I got stuff to do. So the question is, was Joshua's generation successful? I mean, they entered the promised land, right? Like Israel finally had received the inheritance of Abraham. They had land and they were a great nation. And so Abraham, the, the, the Lord's promise and covenant to Abraham was fulfilled in Joshua's generation. And that's incredible. And yet, how many warnings are there all throughout the Old Testament saying, but once you're in the land, if you forsake the Lord, I will discipline you and I will remove you. I brought you into this world. I can take you out, right? Um, And so on one hand, yes, they were faithful. On the other hand, no, they absolutely were not. So what happened? How did we get there, right? What went wrong? And I think that's where it's helpful for us to rewind a little bit to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And that's where we're going to sit uh, for the rest of, of our time uh, together this morning. So if you could flip back just a few pages, it's not too far, uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Again, this is towards the end of Moses' life. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy means second law, right? Deuteronomy, right? Second law is the covenant renewal. Uh, this is him before he passes away, uh, knowing he's an old man, uh, and that he is not going into the promised land with Israel. So he wants to make sure that they remember their covenant with the Lord and that they remember the Lord's promises to them. Uh, so this is a, a renewal of, of 
the law, uh, Deuteronomy 5 is the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 6 is where we pick up, pick up here. So this is Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. <coughs> Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So here's what we're going to do. Um, I, want, I want to walk through uh, real quick just kind of some like Bible study stuff, like frameworks, like what's happening in the text. And then I want to walk through it a second time uh, with a lens to help us apply it to our lives today. Okay? So uh, first up, in verses 4 and 5, uh, we read about Israel's identity. Right? Let's remember that it, Deuteronomy is the, the covenant renewal. Moses is reminding Israel who they are. Just reminding them, who, who are we as Israel? Who are we as a church, right? Who are we as individual families, right? Who, who are you? That as Israel, um, we are people of the Lord, Moses is saying. Uh, it's important to remember, verse Deuteronomy 6.4 uh, is called the Shema because the first word, hear, O Israel, the first word is the Hebrew word Shema, which means Hey, listen up, pay attention, right? It's here. It's, it's an invitation. It's a exclamatory thing that you say to get the crowd's attention so they're listening to what you have to say. Hear, O Israel. Listen up, Israel. This is really important. What's he say? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Remember, when you read in your English Bible and the word Lord is in all capital letters, that is the covenantal name of God, Yahweh, right? That, that is God's special covenantal relationship, his, his intimate, personal relationship with Israel, right? That is God's personal name. And in English, we, we write it in all capital letters. Uh, when you see it with a capital L and a lowercase ord, um, then it's another word for God, uh, usually Elohim, which is God is the God of creation, right? God is the God of all people, right? It's his non-covenantal name, but God is still the God of all creation, Right, even over those who he does not have a personal covenantal relationship with, right? He is still their God. So in in the Shema, what we see is Moses reminding the people what makes us distinct, what makes us different, what makes you as Christians different from your coworkers, what makes you as Christians different from the other students in your school. Right? What makes us different or distinct from the other people surrounding us who do not have covenantal relationship 
with Yahweh, the Lord. Right? This is what the um, this is what Moses is reminding Israel in the Shema. And this is why it's the very first verse that Jewish boys and girls learn and memorize in Hebrew school. Because it's what makes them different from all the others around them. Um, and so when he, he reminds them about who they are, he reminds them of their identity um, and I think it's important for us to recognize, he's saying, hear, O Israel. So all the people are gathered together, all of them. And then what does he do? He continues in talking about parenting, about passing on the faith to the next generation. Um, in the context of the covenant people, he is not talking to, hear, O Israel, here's who you are, and then he pulls the parents aside and gives them like a parent's sermon or a parent's workshop, right? It's, it's calling them everyone together. <coughs> Sorry. And so this is a reminder. Um, if you have kids who are young, if you have kids who are old, if you don't have kids, if you've never had kids, if you're not married, whoever you are, if you are part of the congregation and you're part of this church, then you are here, O Israel. Right? That we are, we call the church the family of God. Do we mean it? So that means that even if your kids are are old and gone, if you don't have children, right? The church kids are your spiritual heritage, right? They are your spiritual family. And we have a commitment to one another as family. Do we not? And so this is for us because kids need more than just mom and dad. Right? Kids need other adults to care for them, to know their name, um, to know stuff about them. Not in a creepy way. Right? Don't, like, sometimes it can get a little weird. Kids, I got your back. Like, it, it, can, it, can, it can be a little weird. Right? But find appropriate ways to, to learn the, the kids' names and to express care and prayer for them. Right? That we are a church family. And so the ministry to the children and to the youth is not just on the children's ministry leaders and on the youth ministry leaders, that it is a church calling. And those ministry leaders are an expression of the church's commitment to those children and youth. I think it's important to recognize that um, it, according to scripture, all generations were gathered for worship. And I love that here, right? I love that. Um, that there's simply no biblical precedent for separating the generations during worship. I don't think that means it's wrong to have a nursery. Um, uh, but it, it is good and biblical to have the generations worshiping together. Remembering that the Psalms were the songbook of the temple. Many of them were written specifically 
to instruct the next generation about God's faithfulness to Israel. Whenever we read covenant renewals about important declarations, uh, the, the next generation and parents were always included, not just the parents, but the parents and children, right? The heritage was together. Uh, when Jesus' disciples tried to shoo the children away from receiving a blessing, what happened? Jesus didn't rebuke the children for coming. He rebuked his disciples for keeping them away. When the apostles wrote letters to the churches, uh, those letters were intended to be read aloud in the public gathering of the church. And there were often sections in those epistles that are directly written to children because they were there as part of the church. We even read about poor young Tychicus, Uh, who was sleeping in a window while Paul was droning on and on, as some pastors do. I know, Troy, you've never, you've never droned. I know, I envy, right? But poor young Tychicus fell asleep during the sermon, fell out the window and died. Well, that's a Sunday morning you're not going to forget, right? So what does Paul do? Paul goes, Praise over Tychicus. The Lord grants a miracle. He comes back to life. And Paul says, as I was saying, and continues his sermon. Yeah, yeah, that's a a memorable one. That's why it's in the book of Acts. I just didn't write down the reference. But it's in there. Um, Right, so the the point is, Tychicus was there. Right, He, he was in the gathering, even though he fell asleep. Hey, it happens sometimes. We get it. Right, so here's the point. Moses is reminding Israel who they are, and that includes all of Israel, not just the adults. Uh, The shepherds of Israel were responsible for the sheep and for the lambs, right? Pastors and, and elders and church leaders are responsible not just for the parents and the grandparents in the church, but also for the children and for the youth and will be held accountable before the Lord for how pastors, not just youth pastors, but pastors, pastor the next generation under their charge. In the next section, verses 6 through 9, we read about Israel's heritage of their children. Let me read this to you again. It says, starting in verse 6, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your heart and on your gates, on your house and on your gates. And the first thing to recognize here is that the commandments of God, first and foremost, need to be on the hearts of the parents. Right? Did you notice that? These commandments are to be on your hearts. And sometimes I've... um, heard people talk about this passage like it's just a laundry list of things that you must do if you want your kids to follow jesus and to love the lord then you need to uh, have family devotions five times a week you need to sing worship songs together you can only listen to christian radio in the car you can you have to do it's like exhausted he says These commandments need to be on your hearts. That is the absolute most important thing for parents who want to raise godly kids. 
is for you to be someone who is transformed from the heart by the power of the gospel. And so I just wonder, I I know many Christian parents uh, who are godly, faithful Christian parents uh, whose kids have walked away from the Lord and they feel terribly guilty and ashamed. Like, what did we do wrong? And then they just like run through this laundry list of things that they wish they could redo and do different. And they're just really, really harsh on themselves. And on the other hand, I know some Christian adults uh, and Christian teenagers who, whose parents are not Christians, uh, who, who have been terribly abusive, uh, who have done everything that should push a kid away from the Lord. And yet they are our faithful, godly men and women. And so my point here is that salvation is always the work of God. It is not the result of a recipe that parents pour into the, their children and mix up with a prayer spoon and then trust the Lord to bake. And here, fully formed Christian at age 18. That's not how it works. Be gentle with yourself and be transformed right from the heart by the power of the gospel. And if your kids are, have, have walked away, if they are walking away right recently or a long time ago, just plead with the Lord to work in you first and then to call them home. Right? That it is the work of God. Um, and so what this verse is instructing us as parents is that we need to be diligent. Not that salvation is in our hands to give to our children. It, it, it's about being diligent uh, for ourselves. Uh, and so when we look at this passage, I want to kind of rewind a little bit and go through uh, Deuteronomy 6 um, and apply it for us today. Right? In, in real life, what does this really mean? For us in the church. So I want to talk about three things. The church, the heart, and the home. Right? The church, the heart, and the home. So first, uh, Hero Israel, right? For the church. One of my major concerns um, for churches and for parents uh, and for parents of teenagers in particular, I am concerned that we don't take the church very seriously nowadays. Um, it, it's, it's really common for uh, small groups or for groups of Christian friends uh, to treat their Bible study or community group or growth group or whatever you call it, right? Like that's a church substitute. Um, or that, you know, my kid goes to Christian school or they went to youth groups so they don't need to go to church. They're fine, right? And, and so it's just like we have these church substitutes. But this is a special gathering for the people of God, is it not? That we need one another. We need each other across generations and between generations to come together with one voice. And I just got I love every time I'm here, I, I love how this building is even constructed, right? So that you see each other, um, so that you remember, you're not just in rows, like it's an auditorium, that, that you're in a circle, right? At, at the family table, so to speak, um, looking at each other and caring for each other, worshiping together. 
And I just, when, when kids go to youth group but not church, then they're missing out on the body of Christ. And we shouldn't be surprised when they graduate high school and unplug entirely from the church when they never really came to church or, or were plugged in during their teen years to begin with, right? Like, are we unintentionally leading our kids um, to, to, teach, uh, to teach them and to reinforce in them that church is irrelevant for them? Yeah, you don't need to listen to the sermon. You can go do this. Like, the church, church is irrelevant for you. You can go when you're older. But then when they're older, what they've learned is that church is irrelevant for them. And then we wonder why they don't go to church. Right? So I love that you have the generations here. That we need to be here. Uh, that kids need to watch each other. During worship, um, I, I think one of the thing, one of the special things that happens when we come and worship, is we see men and women. Right, we see people who are different from us, uh, maybe from different countries, from different towns, different economic backgrounds, uh, worshiping together, despite the things that might keep us separate from each other, despite the things that might cause division, that we come together. And we worship the Lord with one voice. When kids are in worship, they also see widows and widowers who are experiencing a hope that endures their grief and mourning. When kids are in worship, they see a, a wholeness that satisfies men and women who have never married or had children, even though the world is painting a picture like that means you must be lonely and experiencing a deep sense of shame and failure. Instead, there's a wholeness and a joy, right? When kids are in worship, they see people who are suffering from various sicknesses and trials, and yet they're coming to worship because they're living for a heavenly treasure, not an earthly one. And if kids aren't here, then you're not seeing what faith looks like in different stages and in different seasons of life, in the highs and in the lows. Because when we sing and when we worship, we, we, we look at each other, right? We do. That's okay. doesn't need to be awkward. Right? Maybe a little bit. Right? But, but we see the joy of the Lord. Do we sing with joy? Or do we just stand and listen to others sing with joy, right? Like, what are we experiencing in worship together? Another reason why our kids need to be in the church is because the music is formative. How many of us, when we've been at the lowest point, have been buoyed up and lifted up by a song that we grew up singing that we thought was boring? Right? It's not my amazing pastor's sermons, right? Sorry, like we need to admit it, right? Like our sermons are the, the, the diet, it's the meat, right? But like the, the music often is the thing that sinks into our heart that we remember the music. And when we're in the hospital, when we don't know what's happening, when our boyfriend or girlfriend has broken, right? When there's like 
stuff of life is happening, the songs that we sing, even if we claim that they're boring, they come to us and they minister to us once again. Right? Like we need to be in worship together. And so one of, one of the things that, that we've seen over and over again, and it's only increasing, um, is the number of families in our culture today who are finding their identity and belonging through their kids' sports and activities rather than in the local church. And I think that's a real spiritual um, warning bell that we need to pay attention. I know that it's a sensitive topic, uh, but I do think uh, pastorally it's one that we need to pay attention to and it's one that we need to discuss and pray about. I just know too many kids, as a youth pastor for 18 years, I have seen too many kids um, grow up through middle school and through high school who are really good athletes or really good musicians or other clubs or activities who cons- that consumed their time. And so they were hardly at church or they took an entire season off because that sport was more important. Um, and the parents begin to find their crew, right? They, they find their tribe more with the, the other parents who are cheering in the stands than with the people who are sitting with them in the pews. And slowly, 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 the students and the parents begin to feel less intimacy at church than they do on their sports team or in the bleachers. And then the kid, you know, hey, yes, I made the team freshman year of college. And then sophomore year, they retire because they realize that they're out of their depth. And now they're, they come to church and they feel no connection with anyone. They feel a spiritual distance between themselves and the Lord. And they and their families just stop coming to church. I'm still a Christian. I still love Jesus. I just don't go to church anymore. That's a pastoral concern that I think we need to identify and recognize the ways that can slip in. And I think Deuteronomy 6 addresses that, that we need to be people who embrace here, O Israel, uh, that we as individual families, we need a bigger family of faith to support one another and to strengthen us when we're down. Um, in terms of the gospel, right? He says, these words shall be on your heart. Uh, remember in the ancient Near East, the heart was the thing that made you you. That's why when you study about mummies in Egypt, what's the one organ that they left intact when they mummified someone? Obviously, the heart, right? They removed everything else, but they left the heart because that's what made that person that person. That's how the, the gods, right, who were receiving the mummy would know who the person was because of the heart. So when we talk about finding your identity, um, you do you, uh, you be you, right, these, ish, these slogans that we hear um, in our culture today, it's not new, right? It's, it's maybe a new, a new phrase, but it's not a new concept. When the Bible talks about the heart, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about your identity. Who are you? And so, uh, who are you? Like, these words shall be on your heart. It, do, we, do we really believe Jesus from the heart? Or is the gospel just a good idea? 
Right? How many of us think that the gospel is, it's a good idea. I like the idea of grace. But I'm not going to give it to anyone. Right? Parent, kids who grow up in a Christian home, well, I need to teach my kids to obey the Lord's commandments. So when they mess up and sin, I need to discipline them. Well, yes, you do need to discipline them. How does the Lord discipline you? Right? With an iron rod or with gentleness, with patience and with grace? Do we give our kids grace or do we just give them the law? We need to be grace-saturated, grace-generous people. That doesn't mean there's no discipline. That doesn't mean there's no expectation for obedience. But when we talk about teaching the Lord's commandments to our children, I think that parents tend to either believe in holiness or in grace. Right? That, that parents who believe in holiness have a very high expectation for godly behavior. And grace is hard to come by. And parents who believe in grace, they overlook their kids' sin in the name of giving grace. But kids are never really called to repent. And I heard someone once describe it as um, a, a, with a climbing analogy. So think about a climbing wall. Right, you have the rope hooked up to the harness, someone who's belaying you right, and pulling you up. Uh, that parents who are holiness parents, it, it's, you, you want your kids to reach the top so much that you're like practically dragging them with the rope. Because you're helping them. Right? You're helping them get there. But that's actually more dangerous because they're like being dragged up the rock, the, the, up the face. And they're just going to cut the rope. Because you cannot climb when you're being dragged up the rock. And so they're just going to cut the rope. And then you have others who are much great, more gracious. I want them to find their own path. And there's just no tension on that rope, right? They're, they're holding that rope. If you fall, I'm going to catch you. But the kid doesn't, you're, they're halfway up. They're halfway up the wall, and I'm not feeling any... Like, if I fall, I don't know if you're going to catch me or not. And so, just white-knuckle holding on, and I'm not moving. There's no movement. There's no growth. There's no pursuing of anything more than where they are. Because I don't know where to go, and if I fall, will anyone catch me? Right? And so we, as parents um, and as Christians, we want to be people um, of holiness and grace because that is the work of the gospel, is it not? That the Lord calls us to holiness and he atones for our grace. Uh, he atones for our sin. He showers us in grace. He gives us so much patience and gentleness as he leads us into Christ-likeness himself. And so I want to encourage you to remember that the gospel is more than a good idea. That passing on the faith from generation to generation is more than the calling of the youth pastors and the children's ministry leaders 
and the parents that passing the faith from generation to generation is the calling of here, O Israel. This is the calling of your whole faith family. And so as we close, I want to close with this prayer uh, from a book called Everyday Prayers, written by Scotty Smith. I highly recommend it. Um, and so uh, would, you, would you pray with me and, and receive this as our, as our closing prayer uh, for the sermon. Most welcoming Lord Jesus, there's no more important or necessary gift we can give our children than to keep on bringing them to you. Whether they're babies, teenagers, or adults themselves, it makes no difference. At every stage of life, our kids need you, Jesus. For our children who've yet to find life in you, have mercy on them and bring them to a saving knowledge of yourself, Jesus. Don't, they don't just need to grow up. They don't need religion. They don't need moral reform. They need the gospel of your grace. Show them how much they need you and show them how much you love them. Keep them restless until they rest in your complete forgiveness and perfect righteousness. More than we want Harvard for our children, we want heaven. Jesus, some of us grieve the ways we've made the gospel less than beautiful and believable to our children. Forgive us and show yourself to be the God who's limited by nothing, including parental self-righteousness. Transcend the ways we've blown it, but also grant us humility and grace to repent, first before you and then to them. Free us to give our children the gift of our repentance. For our children to know, who know you, but currently seem to have waning or zero interest in you, or even ambivalence or antipathy toward you, hear our cry. Restore to them the joy of your salvation. Our confidence is in our Father's promise to bring to completion the good work he's begun in each of us. But Jesus, we cannot afford to be either presumptuous or passive. Work powerfully, work presently, work persistently, Jesus. We ask for your name's sake. We ask, give us patience with their doubts. Give us forbearance in their struggles. Give us grace to welcome prodigals home. And lastly, Jesus, we ask you to restore us. Restore me to the childlikeness of our early days of knowing you. Free us from childishness indeed, but renew our hearts in childlike joy, playfulness, gratefulness, and simplicity. Our bodies and minds are getting older, but cause our hearts to dance again in the utter and matchless delights of being loved by you. I pray this in your glorious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.